to a Hope 103.2 podcast. Before we dive into the final themes of our series on God's coming kingdom, I want to summarize what we've seen of the Bible's teaching about the future. The New Testament repeatedly insists that the Christian life has three dimensions and that without due regard to all of them, our perspective will be distorted, less than truly Christian. The three dimensions, of course, are faith, hope and love. Faith is our grateful trust in God's mercy revealed in Jesus' atoning death and resurrection. Love is the chief ethical obligation we have to love our neighbours as ourselves. Then there's hope, the sometimes forgotten dimension of Christian existence. Hope, in biblical speak, is not a pious, wishful thinking. It's rather our eager expectation of the future God has promised in the Bible and previewed in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. These three dimensions remind us that as Christians, we live for the past, the present and the future. Faith looks back to the past, to the cross of Jesus, trusting the mercy he secured. Love looks squarely at our contemporaries and tries to serve them in Christ's name. And hope looks forward, rejoicing in the knowledge that this is not all there is, that God has wonderful things in store for us. I can't stress enough how important this three-dimensional perspective on Christianity is. In fact, I suspect most of the problems we encounter in our Christian lives can be traced to neglecting one or other of these three dimensions. Neglect faith in God's mercy and you'll find yourself burdened with guilt and fearful about the future. If you neglect love, you'll become irrelevant to the world and unrecognisable as a follower of Jesus. Neglect hope and your life perspective will shrink and your Christian endurance will waver. Your joy will fade. Some Christians are good at faith and love but sometimes underplay the dimension of hope. This series was intended to redress that, to urge us all, including me, to turn to God's word and embrace his promises about the future. There are, I think, four essential biblical promises about the future, and we've looked at each of these over the last couple of weeks. The first concerns Jesus' return in glory. The scriptures are clear that the Lord who walked the earth in the first century will come again at the end of history to establish God's kingdom forever. This is the so-called second coming, and from the New Testament's perspective, this is the true coming of the Messiah. It's only when Jesus arrives to universal acclaim that the Messiah's mission, as foretold in the Old Testament, will be fully realised. The second of the Bible's great promises about the future is also previewed in the ministry of Jesus and fulfilled at the end of time. God has promised to conquer death. Christ's resurrection within history was the pledge and guarantee that all who are in Christ will likewise experience what the Apostles' Creed calls the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Eternal life in the Bible is raised, glorified, bodily life. 
God the Creator will not abandon physicality. He will redeem it. This introduces the Bible's third great promise about the future. The all-important doctrine of the resurrection of the body has its biblical counterpart in the equally important doctrine of the renewal of creation. According to the repeated teaching of the Bible, God's ultimate intention for creation is not its removal. The Creator will actually be faithful to His creation. He will restore it in a new heaven and earth. The fourth and final promise is, in biblical logic, intimately related to the restoration of creation. God, the Creator, will one day overthrow all that is contrary to His wise and just purposes for the world. As much as contemporary society doesn't like it, and as much as the church has occasionally misused the theme, there is no avoiding the fact that the Old and New Testaments teach that idolaters will be removed, hypocrites will be exposed, and all who oppress the weak and needy will find themselves undone by the Lord of Justice. There is a question that arises from this promise of future judgment. It's one that I'm very often asked. The question is, will Christians, in any sense, be judged according to their deeds? I've said before in this series that those who are shielded by Christ's death will be utterly saved from the judgment of hell or Gehenna. But within this larger truth of a Bible's protection from hell, will the day of judgment bring any loss or shame to some Christians? And any praise and honour to others? Well, the Bible says yes and yes. The Apostle Paul, for instance, says to the Corinthian Christians in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. What does this mean for the Christian? Well, negatively, this means that the sinful activities of Christians will be exposed as worthless, shameful, and deserving of judgment. This is exactly what Paul says of a fellow church worker who, although saved on Judgment Day, will have his shoddy work revealed. Let me read this, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved but only as one escaping through the flames. Christians will not experience the wrath of God itself, shielded as they are by Christ's death. But some of us, more than others, will feel the reverberations of the judgment that should have been ours. A good bomb shelter protects you from the blast itself, but you still hear the explosion and you still feel the shock waves. On the day of judgment, we will know with disturbing clarity which of our actions were worthless and what degree of judgment we should have received if it weren't for Jesus' death on our behalf. 
The experience won't be lasting, but it will be serious. How we behave as Christians really matters. We mustn't live in fear of Judgment Day, but we must live in the knowledge that on that day, the Lord will ask you and me to account for the life we've lived. Well, what about the positive side of the ledger? These two passages, 2 Corinthians 5.10 and 1 Corinthians 3.14, suggest that God also intends to reward believers for good work. Now, the Lord obviously doesn't want us to know what these rewards for faithfulness are, otherwise he would have told us explicitly. God just wants to assure the faithful that he sees their efforts to bring him honour, and he will one day bestow on them honour in return. And that, I reckon, is probably the best way to think about rewards in God's kingdom. God intends to publicly honour the unsung heroes of the faith. That Christian nurse who spent her life serving the destitute in Africa. The persecuted evangelist who preached throughout his beloved China until he was thrown in prison for 20 years. The devout businessman who sacrificed the luxuries of his day so he could give away more than he probably should have. Or the elderly widow who determined to spend her most useful hours praying for the church and for the world. Of course, such people are not any more saved than the rest of us. And they are probably the last people to expect any honours from the Lord. But I reckon there's something beautiful about the promise that the Lord will honour such faithfulness. And when it happens, there won't be any jealousy or comparison on our part. There will just be rejoicing that finally faithfulness is lifted up in all its beauty. Hope 103.2 Thanks for listening.